Welcome to Eminent Americans, a podcast about the contemporary American intellectual scene. I'm your host, Daniel Oppenheimer, a self-anointed intellectual historian of the present. Uh, if you like what you hear on today's episode, which I'm sure you will, you should subscribe to my Substack, also called Eminent Americans, and you should also rate the podcast on your favorite podcast listening platform. I'm told that matters, though I have no independent evidence of that. My guest on the show today is writer Laura Kipnis. Laura is a cultural critic and essayist whose work focuses on sexual politics, aesthetics, shame, emotion, acting out, moral messiness, and various other crevices of the American psyche. She is the author of, among other books, Unwanted, and these are great book titles, by the way, Laura, uh, Unwanted Advances, Sexual Paranoia Comes to Campus, Men, Notes from an Ongoing Investigation, How to Become a Scandal, Against Love, a Polemic, The Female Thing, Dirt, Sex, Envy, Vulnerability, and Bound and Gagged, Pornography and the Politics of Fantasy in America. And her latest book is Love in the Time of Contagion, a diagnosis about love and romance and relationships in the time of COVID and other times as well, but maybe as revealed by the time of COVID. So I've, I, I asked Laura on, I've admired her writing for many years, but the specific reason that I was prompted to invite her on the show were two essays of hers that I'm not sure if they came out in super close proximity, but I read them in super close proximity. So one was her review for Book, Fo- book Forum of the last book by Janet Malcolm, um, which was published after Malcolm's death. And then the other was a short essay for Critical Quarterly that I think uh, A.L. Daly linked to, which was on Christopher Hitchens, the great and terrible Christopher Hitchens, um, and it had the lovely title, Oh, Mr. Hitchens! Exclamation point. And, and these essays resonated with me, I think, for two reasons. One was I just enjoyed reading them as I re- enjoy reading everything that Laura writes, but also because specifically Janet Malcolm and Christopher Hitchens were writers who have been very important to me. I, I wouldn't claim to write in their mold, but I think that they sort of laid down templates for some of the things you can do with writing that have been important to me, and I just loved reading them. I mean, Malcolm's books, Journalist and the Murderer, Silent Woman, The Impossible Profession, 41 False Starts. Hitchens, I guess, more his, his polemics, his essays, than his books per se, though I think I liked his book on Mother Teresa and Henry Kissinger. So both of these pieces by Laura were great takes on two really interesting writers and also two writers who I think are often very hard to capture or kind of daunting for other writers, Malcolm in particular. But the Hitchens piece in particular captured something about him and his kind of late turn towards the end of his life that I've seen nobody else quite capture, which I think, Laura, in the piece, you give it a few different words, but you call it a kind of rigidity in his thinking. So so I want to read a quick passage. Uh, you're talking about an evening when you were drinking with him, and I think you'd met him maybe a few times before that. You knew him a little bit. Uh, I knew him a bit, yeah. And he was giving a talk at Northwestern. You were teaching there at the time. You were having drinks before the talk was scheduled, and then I think during when the talk was supposed to start. And they get on the subject of, the two of you get on the subject of Bill Clinton, who Hitchens really loathed with a kind of unreasoning passion. And you start to kind of give him a little bit of a, I'm sure an affectionate hard time, but a little bit of a hard time about the sort of, just the excess with which he seemed to dislike Bill Clinton. So I'm going to read what you wrote. Something about Bill Clinton's sex life seemed to derange him. He was off the rails on the subject, literally sputtering. I tried to put it to him that he seemed, well, 
overinvested. It seemed way too personal, somehow off. What was it about Bill Clinton that had this unhinging effect on him? And then you put in parentheses, I was kind of drunk at that point myself. I suppose I expected him to at least pretend to ponder the question, devote maybe a few seconds to a show of self-examination. Anyone would, not him. He was barricaded against anything I could say, also against the what is this about for you sort of conversation that drunk people are known to have, which is one of the fun things about drinking. Something obdurate and hardened switched on instead. Thinking was not what was taking place, just pre-rehearsed lines and a lot of outrage. So, Laura, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for writing that paragraph, which I really enjoyed. I'm trying to think of where to start. I mean, maybe we'll start with Hitchens and then just kind of roam over to Malcolm, but then also... The, you and your background, and, and there was there was a, a question or two I kind of asked you to think about in advance of this. But but so how did you know Hitchens? What was the kind of background to your relationship with him, either personally or just sort of intellectually as a as a reader of his? One of the things to say, just to start a little bit before where your question starts, is that I mean one of the reasons I am a paid subscriber to your Substack, I love it so much, is that I think we share an interest in character and personality and how those like reveal themselves both in intellectual style and in writing style. And that's something I guess it's kind of increasingly interesting to me. And, and I suppose that we share with Linton Strange. She also uh-huh. um, is somebody, if I'm pronouncing it, you know, his name right. That's how I always said it, but I don't know. If that, <laughs> right, right. Author of, of Eminent Victorians, which is the, you know, what I'm ripping off for my, for my name. Yeah. And I tried to rip him off when I wrote my scandal book because I thought his little portraits and people could be a kind of model. So I suppose some of that leaches into what I've written about people. And you know, I should say about Hitchens that he was somebody I knew casually over the course of many years because we had a friend in common, Colin McCabe. And the reason I even wrote this piece about Christopher was Colin wanted me to write something for this special issue of Critical Quarterly that he was editing devoted to Christopher Burnett. This was not somebody whose work I really read a huge amount. I mean, I read his essays. I read the memoir later, as I talk about it in this piece. But I just, I wrote the piece just because Colin wanted me to write something and write something funny was the Mm -hmm. direction that I was given. And so I thought back about my encounters with him and I start with a kind of obscene word that he offered to give me (laughs) my book on Scandal, which was both hilarious and, you know, I don't know, maybe he could still get away with that sort of thing. It was something about, you know, that uh, he, uh, like, said if I gave him a blowjob, you know, he'd give me a great book. Yeah, yeah. Or I was, you know, and I confess, you know, it says nothing good about me that I actually did find this funny. So, you know, my interactions with him were as a you know, a fascinating person. I mean, and somebody, but also whose politics, you know, increasingly came to low. So it was really trying to think about how do you think about a person whose politics you despise and don't respect, but yet who is charming. And I, I mean, like a person who I always felt it was kind of an event to know. Yeah. You know, and so I just liked him despite the fact that most people you know, with his increasingly right wing and, and belligerently militaristic kinds of politics, I would just not have much time for. So it was, 
you know, I think we, most of us have experiences, say, like there are people we're incredibly fond of and we don't like their writing or we don't like their intellectual project. And this was, you know, still finding him charming while also finding him increasingly kind of laughable, yeah. visible in terms of his, the rigidity that I tried to talk about. And I kind of go back to thinking uh, on Bergson's book on, on laughter, where he talks about rigidity as the principle of the comic. I cite him in that, and, you know, it's just a bit of a reminiscence, but I tried to pull in a couple of intellectual uh, citations. Yeah, it's interesting. A few things occurred to me while you were talking. One was that, and you can nuance or utterly correct this perception of you and where your politics lie in the somewhat sort of awkward space I imagine you inhabiting, although I might be projecting, which is I think of you as someone of the left, but who has a lot of critiques of the left or of certain orthodoxies or tendencies within the left. That's where I think of you now. I mean, that's where Hitchens cut his teeth in the early part of his career. That's who he was. He was the guy who was at, had this column at The Nation, but I mean, spent half his time attacking conservatives and and particularly neoconservatives with great wit and vigor, but then the other half of the time attacking his own side. And so that was kind of the Hitchens kind of, I don't know if it's phase one or phase two or something of Hitchens. That was how he, that was where he made his name. And then there was this turn towards the end of his life, you know, if not to the right, then at least to the right on the things that, that actually mattered or that he cared about. And one of the things that I liked so much about your essay, and, and it's, it's probably relevant that you said you weren't like a, a hugely engaged or passionate reader of him, is, is that it's the, the takes on Hitchens tend to come either from the people who liked him when he was on the left and then just thought everything was wrong with him after, or the people who, be, who befriended him when he turned right, who seem blind to all of these ways in which he became so much more rigid as a thinker and I guess as a person too. And I think you saw some of that rigidity more clearly maybe because politically, and again, you can correct this, you're less invested in sort of, less invested than many people are in sort of winning the political kind of, the political fight over him. You know, I posted the piece on Facebook and all my correct leftist friends, you know, started protesting that he was always overrated as a writer and, you know, never very good or, detailing the nuances of the shifts and when he shifted and on on why. And I just was interested in him as a stylist. Yeah. And I guess I am, I suppose, not doctrinaire enough that I can think that somebody, even people on the right, can be interesting as stylists while, you know, tossing out their ideas or their values or or whatever. And you know, I mean, I guess Chris, you know, he'd been a Trotskyite and he'd gone through all sorts of, of political phases. And and I guess, you know, as far as me, yes, I mean, I absolutely think of myself as someone on the left, on the feminist left, which I don't think exactly exists in this country. <laughs> and I mean, part of my uh, sense of dislocation these days is whatever they're calling the left on campus, you know, I mean to use that horrible term, the woke or whatever. And I just don't think that is the left. I mean, yeah. really, every time someone talks about the campus left, I want to dispute it. The The investments are absolutely not what I think of as the left, which, you know, minimally, it has a kind of class consciousness or is anti-capitalist. And a lot of the movements for social justice or what are called 
progressive on campus just have nothing to do with that and no sense of the history of left movements, of American left movements, et cetera. So yeah, I also do think the sense of being dislocated from or disaffiliated from the people that I had felt were my, you know, that was where I lived, the campus left or left gender and feminist studies no longer seems hospitable to me. So I am just kind of making my way on my own. It's interesting. He's such an interesting topic for you. And, and obviously, this is one of the themes of the essay, which is his, his charm had this flavor of, I mean, it was this sort of a certain kind of roguish masculinity. It was a certain kind of playful sexism. It was all of those things mixed in with flirtiness, which is, which is so, so much the area where you live so much of the time, which is all of the, the uncomfortable coexistence of left-wing principles, feminist principles, principles of equality and respect with a recognition of the ways that human relationships and the relationships between the sexes don't always align so easily or comfortably with those principles. I mean, you said at the, I mean, you said at the beginning, you know, he had that quote and, and you shouldn't have laughed by it. You shouldn't have been charmed by it. But of course, you're not really saying that. You're saying that's just like the way we are, that we can be, you know, one can be a feminist and yet still be charmed by Christopher Hitchens' sort of obnoxious blowjob joke at the same time. I think so. I mean, I also think you don't have to take it that seriously. I don't think that much hinges on, you know, whether or not you're offended by some stupid teenage kind of (laughs) joke that somebody makes. Yeah, I think part of it is trying to parse what to take seriously and be offended by and whatnot. And as I say, I think his Iraq politics on... And, the, you know, all this Islamo-fascism business was something more to be offended by than jokes about blowjobs. Do you, you mention in this, in this essay, and you sort of quote from an earlier essay of yours, maybe 10 or 15 years ago, about his notorious Vanity Fair essay on how women aren't, I don't know if it's women aren't funny or they're not as funny as men. I remember reading that and, and I guess being less offended by the the argument per se on its own terms, then I just thought, didn't think it was I, did, I I just didn't think it was a particularly impressive piece of writing, and I think that's something you touch on in, in in your essay too, which is I think he just got worse as a writer. Like I was willing to credit him his politic credit him that he could be an interesting writer with politics that were different than mine, but that had to be demonstrated, and I feel like often it wasn't. Often he was just not particularly interesting towards the end of his yeah. life. I think that's absolutely true, but, you know, it's the danger of contrarianism, and I think I'm not prolific enough myself to run into that danger. I mean, I identify with the contrarian label, but, you know, I'm not churning it out week after week as as he was, or was never, it was never my bread and butter as it was for him. So I'm sure that there are a lot of his provocations that were, you know, done for vanity fair deadlines or, you know, to make a buck or, or whatever. And again, yeah, you don't have to take it that seriously. I wrote in that slate piece, um, I mean, it was also kind of in some ways fun to just tangle with him or respond if you didn't take it seriously. I mean, other stuff like his, you know, he'd written uh, against abortion, I think, in The Nation. I mean, that I did take seriously. Yeah. And I actually 
I will confess, I, I wrote an anonymous letter because I, you know, <laughs> there was this good friend in common I knew him. I wrote an anonymous letter protesting it uh, to the nation under my wife's Um, <laughs> You wrote, why did you write it anonymously? Just you didn't want to? I didn't want to get into it, you know? I thought I mean, it was one of the things is that you always probably were you'd come out at the losing end if you would get into something publicly with him. I mean, I could yeah. be mocking at his expense in the slate piece about the Are Women uh, Funny piece. And, you know, I read him saying somewhere after that that he was the beneficiary because all these women then tried to prove to him how funny they were. And, you know, so it was win win for him. Did they publish your anonymous letter? Yes. Oh, they did. (laughs) So you talk about that encounter with him in Chicago about Bill Clinton and that he really was not. And I love, by the way, how you say, like, you know, I expected him to pretend to ponder the question, devote maybe a few seconds to a show of self examination, which is just I just love it because it's just a sort of like like a, a lovely aside about just the kind of nature of self presentation. And, and the ways in which we know that we're supposed to strike a certain pose of at least sort of moderate humility, even if it's not something we feel. But was that the last time you interacted with him in person? No, I talk about it in the piece. Uh, I saw him at a party in New York shortly before his diagnosis. And then, but, you know, I think also, I think it's difficult if you're, you know, a feminist to acknowledge that there's a certain envy or, I mean, I'll acknowledge it, a certain envy I have of a figure like Christopher who just could give a fuck what people yeah. thought of him, you know, and, you know, who could move through the world in a different mode than, you know, someone like me. I suppose there are people who would think that about me, that I've taken enough stances in public that have been controversial that I get people saying this to me, congratulating me for my fearlessness. And, and it's it's always kind of, calculated like is this a public fight I want to have and what's yeah. going to be the downside for me so I just don't feel access to that kind of imperviousness that he had and I envy the people who do feel that but who are also you know not idiots so I, I yeah. don't know how to put it there's people who do feel impervious and should feel more <laughs> sort of vulnerable do you feel like he changed personally I mean, you mentioned that sort of interaction about Bill Clinton where he really was off the rails, but then you have that later interaction where he seems like a more sort of vulnerable figure in some in some ways. So did he become less reflective over time? I think he did in his writing, but I don't know. I didn't know him personally, so I don't have any sort of sense of whether he did interpersonally. My sense is that he became, yes, much more stealth, What's the word? Um, I mean, I used the word rigid about him and his style of thinking, but I mean, I think he both became embattled as, you know, he became a target of people who were formerly his, his allies. But I mean, if you're associating, affiliating with the kind of people he was, I mean, people in the Bush administration, people in the Homeland Security Department, as I kind of mentioned in that. He's one of our last exchanges was about this the guy, Michael Cheroff, who had done his citizenship swearing in ceremony. Well, Michael Cheroff had been the director of Homeland Security. He was a complete creep. Yep. 
I've written about him in my scandal book because he had prosecuted somebody that I was, was writing about relentlessly, prosecuted him. And so, you know, he was hanging out with Donald Rumsfeld and, you know, turning on his friends like Sidney Blumenthal. So to be able to negotiate those massive contradictions in your own psyche, I think you have to become a kind of more ossified character and to take the positions that he was. So, yes, I think he became, you know, richer, more ossified, you know, probably less reflective. And, and I mean, you can really see that. I mean, given that he was somebody who did so much public speaking and was so on in those occasions, it was, I mean, he was really adept at it in a way that, that few people are, but partly that means believing a thousand percent in your own bullshit. Yeah. You know, I mean, I don't think he's somebody that had a lot of moments of the self-questioning. So as I say, at one level, I envy that because I feel like I'm very much not like that kind of person. I'm a bad, I'm bad as a pundit because I'm like, <laughs> like stumbling my way through trying to figure things out. Um, I think it obviously also came at quite a cost to him. I mean, he's yeah. was notorious. So... Yeah, I'm curious, you know, I think you you sort of pointed at this earlier in our conversation, which is you and I are both people who feel relatively comfortable, or at least we create the appearance of feeling relatively comfortable, making psychological observations about other people based on, you know, we're not their therapist, we're not their psychiatrist, but based on the data we have at hand, they're writing if they're personal interactions. And I think... What you just said about him failing to sort of reconcile the tensions of this political turn having an effect on his personality and sort of his, you know, increasing rigidity, I think that makes a lot of sense. I mean, I said when I wrote about him in my book, like, I assume just, you know, the drinking took a toll, that that just like that much drinking over that many decades, you, you don't get what the rest of us get if we're lucky, which is some kind of lucidity and flexibility until we're in our 60s or 70s or something. Like, I just think you have a shorter time span where your brain is flexible in that way. But I guess the other thing I wanted to say, I mean, you as compared to, to Hitchens on this line, I mean, don't you think you're also just a more flexible psyche, like a more integrated psyche? I mean, I don't know. I mean, you've had, you know, I assume you've had a lot of therapy as I have. We've worked pretty hard to be introspective about these things and reflective and deal with our bullshit and our trauma. That was not the Christopher Hitchens way. I mean, that was somebody who had a boatload of trauma who didn't, who, who did not go the route of, you know, decades long arduous introspection. I, you know, I don't think most people escape that without, without falling into a kind of rigidity. Um, I was going to say, as far as your congratulations about my flexibility, it would depend who you ask, I suppose. That goes. But, you know, this also could be a good segue to Janet Malcolm. If we're talking about how people write about psychology or observe other people's psychologies, possibly to the expense of observing their own, you know, Malcolm's so interesting in that regard. I mean, I'm a hardcore Malcolmophile. I mean, are you as well? I always have and had been, definitely, and she's probably one of the people I've read the most and the most thoroughly, thinking a lot about this this last piece that I wrote, which kind of started as a review of her last book of these autobiographical fragments, and I was supposed to review it for Book Farm, and then Book Farm folded, and then I expanded it into an essay, but 
that has a lot to do with what seem like certain blind spots, maybe, or Joy Earns in, in Malcolm's own story or the way she tells her story. And then it ended up running in the new book formats more of an, of an essay. And I, I had more questions, I guess, about her, you know, as they said, writing and reading this last book very, very closely, as you do when you're writing about something or, or someone and finding far more. And, you know, it was her last book. And yeah. Were these, these little fragments written as she was dying in her last few years. But it exposed certain kinds of qualities to her intellectual style that I started having some not qualms about, but just mm. like questions. You know, I started, it started to come apart a little bit, I guess, as I was, as I was probing. Yeah, it's interesting. And I, you know, in a, just a sort of uninteresting sense, it was probably my least favorite of her books, that last one. It seemed like it didn't do the thing that she did so well, where it was kind of taking on some other topic and investigating it with this yeah. incredibly, you know, penetrating gaze. But but I'm interested in you sort of saying more about things about her style sort of coming apart or maybe becoming visible for you, because I think the one anxiety I've had about my just sort of utter adoration of Janet Malcolm is that, and I'm not sure I'm going to be able to articulate this in any interesting way, is that there's this little fear that maybe it's all kind of a trick or something like that. Mm -hmm. There's this thing that she does that she figured out that's kind of a trick that she sort of did over and over again. And I think it's the most brilliant thing ever, but there's this little this little voice in my head that's like, not that it's bad, but that there maybe is actually sort of more of a shallowness to it or it's creating the illusion of sort of depth and brilliance more than its reality. And, and, and I couldn't tell you why I think that way. And I'm not sure I do think, like, basically, I do still think that she was, like, amazingly brilliant and a goddess. But I have always had that anxiety about her. And I'm wondering, when you say that things started to sort of become apparent to you or things started to come apart, it, it both is, like, fascinating, too, and then anxiety producing as well. Because I'm like, maybe Laura figured out that it is all just a trick. Um, it's both when I'm often when I'm reading people, one of the things I'm interested in, you know, as a writer, also myself, is like, how does the person accrue authority to themselves and to their positions and to their modes of analysis? So I suppose that's part of what I was reading, you know, given this was a late work and it is about herself, and she's not really, she's, she's, being more disarming than she is being authoritative in it. But a couple of things. So one of the things you, that comes up as a repetition, and of course, reading for repetition is <laughs> one of the things you learn from Malcolm or from Freud. You know, that's the, the repetitions are kind of where you want to look to understand anything. And one of the things she repeats an awful lot is the experience, talks a lot about the experience of being sued. And one of the, I only had a few conversations with Janet and her and her life, and one was me wanting to interview her about being sued, because I myself had been sued, and I thought we could talk about that. So I wouldn't be that interesting. But, you know, so she talks about that a lot in these reflections. She comes up a lot, and you realize, you know, kind of what a wound it was for her, obviously. But at the same time, she admits to having made up various things. <laughs> In her writing, right. which is a very strange thing to do. And why on her deathbed would she admit to having 
you know, faked a couple of different things. And as I was doing some research just recently, because I've been thinking about possibly writing more, I came across a really, you would be interested in this really fascinating essay by Richard Posner, Judge Posner. Mm. Richard, right? I think um, so, yeah. Yes, yeah. right. Uh, the Judge. And it was about Malcolm's book, The Trials of Sheila McGaugh, uh-huh. uh, which is one of her probably least successful books. And it's another one of her books that, you know, a trial, a legal case and a trial. And Poser went back and actually looked at all the court documents, which would not have been available to people at the time because this was before I guess Pacer or whatever. But he said she left a huge amount out. She didn't precisely make things up, but she skewed the argument or skewed the evidence that she introduced or, or reproduced to, you know, go along with her conclusion that McGough was kind of set up. And she did the same thing in that if I can name, I don't know how to pronounce that word. Oh, if Iphigenia or something if, of the, of the, yeah, yeah, yeah. Who had her husband murdered, right? Yeah. The Jan also seemed to strongly suggest had been set up or framed or was innocent, where she clearly had done it. Yeah. So so the, the issue about, like, skewing the evidence, I mean, I suppose when somebody really does start going through her archives, if that happens, you know, I think there probably is a lot more skewing of the evidence, leaving things out. And one of the stories that she tells in The Journalist and the Murder that I always thought was so brilliant is she tells this story about Joe McGinnis, the writer. I don't know if you remember this. It's the story about his staying at, I think it's William Styron's house, and he decides to take this huge, like, $200 jar of crab meat that Styron has been saving for some special occasion and make some glock with rich Ritz crackers <laughs> and make a, like, crab meat uh-huh. glock with Ritz crackers, and it was... Styron woke up and like saw what had happened to his crowd and he was nearly in tears. So it's like Joe McGinnis must obviously have told Janet Malcolm the story, or maybe he write. No, I think he writes about it in his memoir. And she like uses that to just <laughs> you know. And it's like so brilliant because it's like to take this really weird anecdote about being a house guest and maybe being a bad house guest and turn it into this complete indictment of its character. So, I mean, she was really brilliant at doing yeah. that, finding these offbeat moments or like some item of somebody's decor, you know, or some passage in, in something they've written and like use that as to completely like sum up and indict them as a character. Yeah. You know, it's these things she's so good at doing that. But if you start seeing what she does in order to achieve that effect, maybe you would become a little less, I don't know what, admiring of her. Yeah, it's kind of, yeah, I'm thinking about that. It's kind of this sort of unresolvable tension with her because part of the part of the admiration that she elicits from people is like, how the fuck did she do this, right? Like, how did she get, I mean, I remember reading those books and, and say, how did she get people to talk, you know, in uninterrupted, like lucid sentences and paragraphs for eight pages? And of course the answer is she didn't, right? She talked to them, I mean, which, you know, she talked to them many times over many months and then and then wrote it up in a monologue, which I, which I was not, fully aware of, I mean, you're always suspicious of, because if you've done any reporting, you're like, well, nobody could possibly talk like this. But it's like, how the fuck did she do that? How the fuck did she get people to say these things to her? Part of the 
kind of unresolvable tension is there is a deception there of there, there's an unacknowledged artifice, but then there's a kind of the undismissible fact that, you know, okay, but you try and do that. Like, you try and pull off what Janet Malcolm did. I mean, didn't, like, the great, like, Polish journalist Kapuczynski, didn't he do the same thing, right? I mean... I think he's accused of making uh, stuff up, yeah. I, I mean, that was, a, if I remember, like, was a big uh, point at the trial with Jeffrey Mason that she had strung together these quotes, and, you know, and, and she argued that that was accepted journalistic practice, and I think a lot of other journalists said, no, it wasn't. But I'll say, just to mention something else I wrote recently, I wrote a profile, Joe Weisberg, who was the creator of the show, The Americans, and the showrunner for it, co-creator. He was the creator and the co-showrunner, and I wrote a piece for Wired, and it was about a 5,000-word profile. And, you know, where you're interviewing the person over many sessions, and, you know, you do end up stringing things yeah. together. But the other thing is, is and you know, and I did not have any animus toward Joe. I was a great admirer of the Americans and kind of fascinated by it. But you know, there is this like you get to know someone, you've been sitting, you know, sharing whatever meals and et cetera with them, and like how much are you going to let them hang themselves with their own words or petard? You know, it, yep. it does become, you know, like I know I could make this person look kind of stupid if I have them say this, you know, or, or quote their own, you know, passages either in or out of context, you know? And I, I always wondered how much am I personally comfortable with either selling this person out if it's somebody who trusted you or portraying them in a way I think is legitimate but is going to skewer them socially, yeah. you know, et cetera. Yeah, and I, I've had a few situations like that where I've sort of reported on people and thought about that. I often end up feeling like I don't think I'm a good enough writer to justify kind of this sort of moral infraction. But but then but then feeling like maybe Janet Malcolm was, or, or not even maybe, like she was. And I'm not sure I could defend this with any kind of moral or philosophical system, but just that there's an exemption for genius or something like that. Like like. It, is. I mean, you know, the takedown by the takedown by the untalented of the talented is, you know, quite a <laughs> yes, right. Well, okay, yes, but whether I am one or not, I'm on the side of the talented, which is like, but 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 as a and I and I probably as you have more in a sort of critical space, I've been willing to do that because I had enough conviction or confidence in my sort of capacity to say something interesting and represent something thoughtfully been willing to say negative things about people. But I haven't had to do it. I'd never done that in a profile. That would be really hard. That would be really hard to spend that much time with somebody. And of course, you do all the things which she writes about, particularly in the journalist and the murder. You all do all the things to ingratiate yourself to them and to, you know, subtly and not so subtly indicate that you're on their side, that you've got their back, that you're interested in telling the story of themselves that they, you know, representing the narrative of themselves that they have. And all of those things, <laughs> then, you know, yeah. and whatever, they're not stupid most of the time, right? Unless they're true, like, unsophisticates or something like that. They know it's a risk, but, I mean, still, that's a rough thing to do to somebody. Uh, I think people can get stupid under the 
pleasant glow of somebody else's attention. Yeah. You know, I mean, obviously that's what, I don't want to say obviously, but that seems to be what happened with Janet and um, Jeffrey Mason, that she skewered him in ways that he wasn't expecting and thought weren't fair. Yep. Mom, um, you know, and accused her of making up quotes. And it's always been a bit unclear. Well, that's a whole other sideline about these notes she found a decade later, you know. (laughs) That whole story is a little iffy, too. I don't even know what to do with that story. (laughs) I'm curious what your experience has been with this. When I, I sort of had two experiences of writing long things on somebody and then getting some feedback on whether they liked it or not. And so I wrote a whole chapter on David Horowitz, the sort of formerly left-wing, now very right-wing writer, you know, intellectual sort of policy entrepreneur. And I I was not, I didn't pull punches. I mean, I think I sort of gave serious attention to him and his thought and his life, but I sort of offered my opinion on the ways in which I thought he'd gone wrong. And I did the same thing to Norman Podhoritz, you know, longtime commentary editor and neoconservative, and in somewhat thin skin. Thin skin. Well, they're both thin skin, but what it turned out was that they're thin skin about different things. So David Horowitz loved it. David Horowitz is like somebody finally took me seriously. I mean, he's a fucked up personality too. But some part of what he wants is for serious people to take his thought seriously and his critique seriously. So I did that. Whether even though I think he went wrong in all sorts of ways, but I gave them sort of serious critical attention. So he's like, "This is great," and Norman Podhoritz is like, "This is fucking terrible." This is a you know travesty. You're an untalented hack, and I, and I think it had to do with just like the sort of the, the psychologization I did of both of them, and in, to some extent the sort of rooting some of their politics in their in their pathology and their trauma. For whatever reason, Horowitz seemed to be fine with that, and but Horowitz found that a sort of total kind of psychological violation or something like that, or a totally illegitimate approach to him. Mm -hmm. I mean, have you had that? Have you gotten feedback from people who you've offered sort of critiques of? That's a good question. I did write in this book, Unwanted Advances, and in the Chronicle articles about sexual politics, paranoid sexual politics on campus that led up to it. You know, I wrote about certain figures on my campus mm. and other campuses. And yes, I did hear from some of those people, in, including by the illegal uh, means of recourse. Yeah. Oh, so this actually reminded me. So you approached Janet Malcolm about interviewing her about her own legal troubles. And this was when you had had this Title IX complaint filed against you? It was, I had been sued. And I can say that because it's, it's on the public record. I can't actually talk about the details of it, but I was sued over the book. And I, I wanted to have a heart-to-heart with Janet about it, and she she was not up for that. But she did actually write a very nice note about the book after I sent it to her, really gracious flattering note. So, and it was very much indebted to her. I mean, it is also yeah. kind of proceeds by talking about certain kind of legal situations and lawsuits and stuff. Uh, and I, the kind of a way of trying to merge narrative with legal and, you know, I, I read her very closely trying to figure out how do you do that? You know, just like moving between the exposition and the kind of dialogue and, you know, there were just yeah. these moments of different things to, to juggle. And so I kind of read her as a textbook on that. 
Dude, was she was she charming in her personally? The one time I saw her, I mean, I met her briefly. She was doing a talk when I was at when I was at Columbia getting my graduate degree, and she was so kind of contained and low key. I mean, to the point of being a little bit boring, frankly, to sort of watch. And one of the essays in this last book that you talk about, she talks a little bit about kind of the New Yorker style and, you know, this this sort of studied pose of kind of distance from things. And you put your personality into your writing, but interpersonally. And so you had, it didn't sound like you were good friends with her, but you knew her a little bit socially and like had been to parties at her house. Was she a little bit more kind of loose and charming in person or was she that same kind of quiet, sort of contained, you know, standing in the back of the room, kind of watching you with her eagle eyes, but not giving anything away? I found her difficult to talk to because her rhythms, her conversational rhythms were somehow not in sync with mine. So she would say nothing. So I'd start talking (laughs) and she would talk, you know, that sort of rhythm. So I knew the contained Janet. I I mean, she's friendly, but I know a couple of male writers who describe her as great fun or great gossip, loves to just gab. And so I didn't have that gab relation with her and but enough people who did. So tell me about your background. I mean, we sort of, I asked you a little bit about this via email, kind of what, what you, what your cohort is or how you sort of locate yourself in the sort of intellectual history or journalistic history of our times. You know, what's your backstory? Who did you come up with? Mark Maron on his podcast. Do you ever listen to Mark Maron's podcast? His, his about... I just watched a... I think it was a comedy special with him. On his but... podcast where he's interviewing a lot of comedians, it's always... He always says, who did you come up with? Because in the comedy in the comedy world, there would be these different cohorts at the sort of, you know, Catch a Rising Star or the Comedy Cellar. There'd be some cohort of, you know, five or 10 or 15 yeah. people who you kind of made your bones with or something like that. But But... Uh, writers don't have the same thing, but maybe we have a, a more abstracted version of it or something like that. It was an interesting question to be asked because I suppose there's a slightly like awkward and painful answer to that question about who I who I came up with because the person I most came up with was Lauren Berland. Mm. And we were like very, very close, like best friends starting at careers together. So that would have been, I mean, this... Sorry, this part we did seem to like mid-80s on, I guess. She was starting as an assistant professor at UFC, and I was starting, I was just starting at the Society of Dollars in Michigan, but I lived in Chicago. So we met and became, you know, super close. And a lot of the stuff that I wrote at that time had a lot to do with Lauren and the friendship and the kind of conversations we had, especially because she was the person who got me to write. She was editing a special issue of Critical Inquiry on Intimacy, and she wanted me to write something for it. And I, I had said for kind of as a joke, oh, I'll write about adultery. Mm-hmm. And the reason was that we there was somebody we knew in common, a married English professor who kept having affairs and kept getting caught having these affairs by his wife, and you know, which was a subject of levity between us and she you know so when I said I'll write about adultery it was a kind of inside joke about that and she said yes yes you have to so I wrote this essay on adultery for for critical inquiry which I think they were slightly dubious about running like you know was this a was this a contribution to knowledge or not but you know that ended up 
turning into the book, my book against love, which uh-huh. was, and by that time, we were not friends anymore, and then we had a friendship breakup in in the early nineties. But the the style of writing in that book, I think, was very much kind of reflective of the kinds of conversations that we always had, which moved very swiftly between the personal and gossip and psychoanalysis and and you know Marxist cultural theory, Sonianism. So, oh, so that's interesting. So I didn't know, so you weren't coming out of a sort of traditional academic program in the sense of like a PhD in literature or something like that. But your intellectual reference were really pretty academic. And your MFA was in film, right? It was not in... It was in fine arts. It was in I fine mean, arts, was... okay. I mean, I think of you as a journalist, you know, a, a critic and a journalist, but that was not your background. You were not, that's yeah. not who you were reading. That's not who you were being influenced by. I mean, my background, would, I would say you know, it was sort of cultural studies because I would get asked to write these things like, like for example, the first big cultural studies reader that was from a big conference at Illinois. Well, I had met like Larry Grossburn and Trey Nelson there and, or Larry mostly. And so this was kind of in the ascendancy of cultural studies in, uh, on American campuses, somewhat transported from Birmingham school. And they asked me to write a piece, and I wrote this SN Hustler magazine. And I thought, well, this is a weird thing to write, but they were into it. Yeah, It was kind of a critique of feminist anti- the feminist anti-pornography movement via class politics and talking about Hustler magazine, the class politics of Hustler magazine. So that, you know, it was just because I was reading all this weird stuff at the time and that essay became kind of circulated a lot in cultural studies context, which led to me being asked to write more and speak places and keynote places. So, you know, it was a bit of a career making. Yeah, I was going to say, did you think of when you were writing for these academic peer-reviewed journals and anthologies, did you think of yourself as building an academic career or was it more ad hoc than that? Totally ad hoc. And, and I mean, one of the great things about not coming out of traditional academia or coming out of a discipline was that I could just do do what I wanted. I think other people would not have written that essay on Hustler yep. did not have tenure. People have said that to me. And I never thought about that because I was in these film programs. I was you know, teaching production and they thought of writing criticism or cultural theory as a kind of plus. Having done that meant that I had a kind of good profile to be hired in research universities because they would always be in the position of justifying having somebody teach production. And so if you had quasi-scholarly publications, you know, that helped as a a profile of somebody hireable and and tenurable, sort sort of tenurable. So, no, I was not at all thinking of her career. I mean, it was more like I just would do whatever anybody else. So did you, and then, but but did you sort of move sort of incrementally or organically into more of a space? I mean, I may be sort of over-interpreting the fact that you knew Hitchens and you knew Malcolm, but when I read that, I imagine, okay, well, Laura must be moving in those circles, right? Particularly in New York, where you're ending up at parties where the, you know, intelligentsia are or something like that, where you're, where you're mixing with New Yorker writers and folks from the nation and, you know, and the New York Times and things like that. Is that, is that accurate or is that a total misperception? Um, misperception. I think it was also like it's in more ad hoc than that. Yeah. So 
I mean, the thing that I, I would say in a certain way was a turning point was when I wrote Against Love, I had an editor, I mean, a really great editor. I sold it as a trade book to Pantheon, which is part of Random House. And my editor was Errol McDonald, who he had, he's kind of in that brat pack, you know, with James uh-huh. and people yeah. like that. But he was a great editor for me because he didn't want any of this academic writing. I was like, and Marcuse says, he'd like, oh, I don't <laughs> care. Who knows? You know, nobody cares about Marcuse. So he was very adamant about kind of stripping a lot of that referencing, you know, that academics do out of the writing. So I think that did make me more somebody who could cross over and write in this non-academic way. But it, it, that really came from having good editors and people who said, who just were not, were impatient with that kind of academic citationalism of a lot of, you know, academic writing. So, it, so as I say, it was a kind of a bit more happenstance. And I, I, I actually don't think of myself as a journalist. I mean, I don't think I could write for a place like The New Yorker because I don't have that style and don't really want to have the voiciness stripped out of my writing. So I would say... Critic? Cultural critic. Cultural maybe. critic. Well, and so, and so is there an answer, you know, to the question of your cohort? I mean, is there a different answer to the question now? Are there people yeah. who you, I, I don't, I was going to say affiliate with, and I, I don't mean that literally in the sense that you're in a, you know, you're in a book group with them or you guys get together at the bar that you just think of as kind of, of your ilk in some fashion, whether it's politically or intellectually or some intersection of feminism and Marxism and psychoanalysis. I mean, who do you, you know, who do you read? Who, who, who do you vibe with? Well, I will say that I really did stop reading academic writing at a certain point. And I was talking earlier about feeling pretty disaffected with campus politics. And it was both that I was brought up on these Title IX complaints in, I think it was 2016, after this essay wrote for the Chronicle of Higher Education came out on Paranoia's Campus Sexual Politics. And... So that wasn't the worst thing in the world to happen to be brought up in these Title IX complaints. And then I got to write more and more about that and writing a book about it. But what it did mean was that I was getting invited to a lot less academic conferences, whereas up till that point, I was writing a lot of academic papers. So for academic publication, you know, conferences and publications, because I was getting asked to. And... You know, I did feel at that time my cohort was, like I said, kind of left academia, feminist and gender studies, queer studies, because the stuff that I'd been writing about pornography and love, et cetera, was also kind of adopted within queer studies. And uh-huh. I think I was a fellow, fellow traveler, accepted member. I was also anthologizing queer studies readers. And a lot of that dried up after the mm. Title IX compliance because that's what had happened to that sector of, of academia. I mean, I was seen as anathema to whatever it yeah. was they thought I stood for. And, I mean, the thing that also really turned me around was not even my own case, but I don't know if your listeners will remember this, but the Rebecca Tuval case, which was in, I think it was 2017, she was a philosopher who'd written an essay for a a feminist uh, journal called Hypatia, where she compared as a thought experiment, which is what philosophers, I guess, 
get up to. I yeah. compare trans racialism and trans genderism. Right. I remember that. And the, and the yeah. journal ended up sort of apologizing, retracting. Is that right? Well, what ended up happening was that something like 800 people in feminist and queer studies signed a petition saying that the piece should be withdrawn. Some people said she should be fired or, I mean, various sorts of yeah. punishments should be dealt to her. And I mean, I couldn't believe it because the people who had signed this thing were the people that I had thought of as, that was my cohort. Yeah. You know, those were the people that I had been hanging around with for a decade. And I just had, I mean, I lost some friends over it. I mean, I could not fucking believe it. I couldn't believe. I thought it was the an incredible act of bad intellectual bad faith. You know, yeah. on how about it? But I, I think at that point, I just thought, like, you know, I'm I'm done here. <laughs> was there? Do you were there were there some points along the way? So I guess there was the first thing you wrote about paranoia on campus that then led to the complaint. And is that right? And then the sort of subsequent things that you wrote. Was there, were there decisions that you made, like conscious decisions with an awareness that some of this stuff might make you, you know, maybe anathema is too strong, but they, they might create kind of social or professional problems for you? Because I, I think, I'm sure you're not alone, you, you know, but you're far from alone in, in coming across some of these cases of kind of illiberalism or what, whatever we want to we want to call them and 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 recoiling in horror but most people in your position kind of go into a sort of interior exile right but did you did you know what you were doing in that sense or did you know what the consequences might be there were things you were doing at each step along the way when you could have taken you could have kept doing your stuff but taken a less sort of publicly polarizing stance that was likely to have sort of personal and professional consequences well, sure, I could have not written about it. And, you know, and that was what was kind of explosive that I wrote this piece, the Chronicle also ran poem, which they titled My Title IX Inquisition. You know, and it was a picture of, you know, those pitchforks flying through the air. And so, you know, that was one decision. And I did think I was worried about was more my job rather than you know, the academics would think I was a bad girl. And I did do some kind of calculations, internal calculations of, could I get fired for this? Because they do threaten you with all sorts of stuff when yeah. you're in these rooms and you, you know, not allow the lawyer. You're, and so they tell you, if you talk about this, there'll be more charges. So, I mean, I did really weigh the pros and cons. And I thought, you know, I was in Northwestern, which is a liberal, I think, thinks of itself as a liberal place. The president thought, he, I thought of himself as, and is, was a, a Good liberal. I just did not think they had it in them to fire a feminist professor for writing an essay in the Chronicle of Higher Education. <laughs> and I just, I didn't see it happening. Yeah. And when, you know, and if it did happen, I thought, well, you know, fuck these people. I mean, yeah. it just wasn't, it, it, it did bring out a certain kind of warrior quality in me uh, that I didn't exactly know that I, that I had. I'd always been a kind of ironic contrarian and part of the problem was that I was writing ironically about a subject like sexual politics that a lot of people decided you're not allowed to be ironic about. So that was part of the issue. Yeah. So I think, you know, the question was for me was, was, was this going to affect my job? And then later when I wrote the book on modern advances, I actually used confidential documents that had hung into my possession 
by this professor whose dismissal sure I was asked to attend, and he resigned rather than uh, go through the process. So he had all these documents, internal confidential documents that he just gave me, and I decided to quote them and, and publish them. So, you know, there was a question there as to would there be repercussions for me. But I, mean, I think I was less concerned about, you know, would, would people in gender studies departments start stop liking me, partly because I was less interested in writing for academic places at that point. I and mean, at that point, I was most of the stuff I was writing was for more mainstream uh, periodicals and I was publishing in, you know, non-academic presses. Yeah, we were talking about Hitchens earlier, and there were real social consequences for him to the stances he took, you know, on on Iraq in particular, that had an, a pretty profound effect, I think, on his experience of the world. And I think part of what I'm asking, I mean, you said your cohort or your, your people were these queer studies people and these gender studies people, and you were no longer invited to give talks and things like that. For some academics, that would be, I mean, it depends on what the nature of your sort of social, your social world is, right? For some academics, that would be a that would be a pretty grievous blow. I mean, it would be to be exiled from the community from which you maybe drew identity, in which you had friends. You know, for some people, it's like part of their social, their years are sort of structured in certain ways around conferences they go to. But but maybe there wasn't that, quite that for you. You know, I always did have like one foot in and one foot out of academia because of coming from the art world as opposed to academia. So I always felt like a bit of an interloper or what's one mascot or something in, in, in those circles. But I think I was kind of liked for that reason because my writing wasn't academic. Yeah. So it was always a plus. I think I had more freedom, sense of freedom intellectually and stylistically because of not being as traditional academic. But one of the things that about exile, you know, that's too glorified a word, is that, you know, nobody writes and says to you, we are exiled. Right. And we just notice that, you know, you're not getting those invitations. And, you know, if people unfriended me on Facebook, it's not like I necessarily noticed that. Right. So, I mean, it's been like only very few occasions where it's come to my attention that somebody now hates me. Somebody will come up to me and say, you know what, I will be invited to a conference and say something about it. Uh, so I don't have a full grasp of it. You know? well, well, then I, I the other side of that question, which is, have there been efforts to sort of seduce you over to the dark side huh. of, yeah. of okay. you know, because there's a whole circuit out there of people who I'm sure would be happy to recruit you to their army of sort of, whether it's disaffected former leftists or anti-woke leftists or whatever. I mean, has that, have you experienced that? Oh, yeah. And how do you think about it? How do you deal with it? I was going to say that is a commonality, Christopher, but I think Christopher probably benefited a lot more by it because he would take those invitations yeah. and go speak to the, I don't know where he was doing the speaking, but, you know, he was circulating and probably getting big talk fees from, from the right. So after I came out about the Title IX thing, I mean, it was mad. All of these right-wing places were trying to adopt me as one of their own. And I think in some ways, particularly that kind of sort of sector, you know, 
those people I got a lot of invites from. And it turns out, I mean, you learn things that I didn't know, which is, for example, a lot of campuses had these little libertarian enclaves uh-huh. institutes that are very well funded. I think a lot of them get Coke money. So, you know, you'd get this huge speaking fee offer from a place that you would never get if you were just some regular feminist leftist. They wanted me to talk about Title IX or campus sexual politics. And some of that stuff I accepted because yeah. I wasn't getting the other invites. It was lucrative. I thought, why not? Some of them I didn't. I'd get invited to the Cato Institute or someplace like that, which is a libertarian, you know, one of those things. So... Yeah, I think for them, burnishes their credentials to have a, a left feminist, where the left isn't interested in finding the, the right, uh, you know, they're not, you know. To... I mean, they may be interested in finding them. They're certainly not going to give them as generous speaking fees. Yeah, it's, it's, I hadn't thought about that in a long time. But yes, there is that whole world of incredibly well-funded campus conservative entities. It used to be there was the, what was it, the ISI, there was the the William F. Buckley found, I think it was the Intercollegiate Studies Institute that funded a lot of these campus groups. I'm not, but but maybe it's the Koch brothers or Koch brother now. But you know what, I'll also say when you meet the students who are associated with things, they're oftentimes really smart. No, those conservative students, they're all, not all, but some of them are the only ones who are like reading Aristotle and, you know, de Tocqueville and, or, or they're the ones who are putting, they're very serious and sort of thoughtful and nerdy yeah. and probably appealing yeah. and not, I don't mean that in any kind of cynical way. They may go on to become sort of disgusting cogs in the, the right-wing machine, but at the age of 20, they're very sort of appealing in their intellectual sort of thirst yeah. and seriousness. Curiosity and openness, you know, um, as opposed to, I mean, I give talks at places like Pomona College and other students would just be lined up to denounce me. And, you know, <laughs> just in these kind of unthought out, cliched terms. I mean, it happened twice in the Claremont. Uh, oh, really? You mean in the aftermath of all this stuff, they'd get up there at the, the, the Q&A section and there'd be that awful, awkward thing where they think that they've thought through their sort of devastating comment that they're going to make, and then they get up and they fumble over their words, and it, and you sort of feel bad for them, even as, the, no, as they're... I don't feel bad. Oh, okay. Definitely. <laughs> <laughs> I'm probably bad at, you know, the quick retort, and also, you know, trying to be respectful while also saying you're full of shit. Do you think about sort of when, when you're getting these in, invitations from libertarian or conservative entities and, you know, some of the more left-wing spaces that were interested in you, kind of those opportunities dry up. Do you monitor your soul in some way? Worry about sort of slowly, incrementally sliding over to a sort of different space where where your former self wouldn't wouldn't recognize you or something like that? I worry about it for me because I spend a lot of time reading in these kind of wokeness, anti-wokeness spaces. And I worry sometimes that sort of my... I'm, I'm being changed in ways that I'm not attuned to. I think I maybe worry a little bit about my impatience with maybe, let's say, the intellectual caliber of, of some of that stuff that, you know, passes for the left on campus. Now, that just seems like a lot of self-congratulatory, moralizing I mean, I write a lot of stuff in which I proclaim, as a left-wing feminist, I am. So I'm trying to state, look, I haven't changed. Yeah. 
And I think the kind of analyses that I'm making on the same as they would be, and I'd also try to stay out of a lot of this woke, anti-woke stuff, because it's just tedious, and it's there's no point in hashing this over again and again. And I mean, there's a lot of these sort of anti-woke people, I think that has deformed their writing. Yep. You know, their writing has become knee-jerk. Find your topics. I wish I could. New because I'm, I feel a little out of topics. I mean, oftentimes people come to me and ask me to write about something. And one of the reasons I ended up with this book on scandal is I was being asked to do these talks or write something. And then I noticed, you know, after a while that I had accrued like 10 essays about people in scandals. So I think it's often kind of after the fact that you realize that you're preoccupied with something. So the last few projects, you know, ended up coming about because somebody had asked me to write something. Like, the, I wrote the my second book on love, which was Love in the Time of Contagion, because my editor, Errol McDonald, who was my editor on Against Love, came to me and said, you have to write this book about love in, you know, COVID times. And so it was kind of great because he came to me with this project but it was kind of less great because you wanted it in a year. And I'm not really like that. So I mean, yeah. so it was written fast. It was written from the midst of this yep. moment. I, I was as, as clueless and befuddled as anybody could be about it all. It was interesting for me reading it and, and really enjoying it, but I'm, I'm always interested in sort of being pulled back into the pandemic space because that was such a fucking weird space. Still and is. It, and I, but I, but I can't, I feel so far away from it now. I don't feel, Me? I do, you don't? I feel like I can't even, I can barely kind of remember what it was like, you know, to sort of lice all my groceries. It's not even that. I mean, there's those little things about it, but that, that were sort of, you know, feel kind of crazy in retrospect. It's more just the like the relationship to time, but you also write about like the way your world narrows enormously and your schedules flatten out and the number of people who you're physically seeing on a regular basis becomes so few. Your world's become so small and so much more regular in certain ways. There's this, I mean, and maybe I'm just speaking myself, there's this vast uncertainty, right? So there's this vast uncertainty about the, the disease and what kind of effect it's going to have. But on a day-to-day level, at least for me, it's like I'm just holed up with my family, seeing them every day. We've got our routines. A lot of, I feel so distant from that. But you don't. That's interesting. Well, or less I so than I. I was trying to think, you know, more than I usually do about where am I intellectually in preparation for a conversation. And I think one of the things I realized about that is that you know, it was the arrival of Trump folded into the pandemic. And I think it was those two events seemed to me to just completely alter the world, uh, my sense of knowing the world that I was in. And that that's kind of discombobulating for me as a writer. A lot of the stuff that I've written, like even the last book I love, is, is a book in which you're talking about personal life against the backdrop of the social landscape. So right. But like people, you kind of need you feel like you need to have some kind of grasp of where things are in order to just even be able to kind of write a sentence that seems plausible about the social world. 
Yeah. You know, and it feels just like really hit a loss more and more. There's a blogger I read sometimes who, and this encompasses a lot of different things, but he he talks about this phrase, the great weirding, which is his characterization of the experience of reality maybe over the last 10 or 15 years. He doesn't trace it quite to Trump. I think it's also social media and the internet and the, the sort of linearity of culture seems to have collapsed. So all the different eras and styles kind of coexist at the same time. So our experience of that is different. And then with Trump sort of politics detached and there's something unmoored about the time that we're in. That resonates. It's not something I think I have a particularly great amount of insight into. Do you know, so do you know, I mean, do you, do you have a bigger project you're working on right now? I suppose I am toying around with the idea of writing more about Malcolm and yeah. thinking about going to the archives, which are Yale. I would be daunted to write a biography of Malcolm, but that may be because she looms so large in my psyche and in my imagination, and, and you're a little bit more, have a little bit more critical perspective on her. I feel like I would just be haunted by this, can I do justice, you know, to Malcolm? Can I do a Malcolmian take on all of these sort of, sort of, you know, rhetorical challenges that would present themselves in her, unlike somebody else who wasn't, who wasn't at the very least a kind of minor master of a certain kind of style. Yeah, I mean, I think there was a a worry that I had with the piece I wrote that it was just too much in the mode of a table turning mm-hmm. on on her. But yeah, there is there is that worry, but I'm not sure. I mean, I, I think I, I'm used to biography. I mean, I'm not sure exactly what it is that we want to write. I mean, I don't think it would be in any way like a straightforward biography. I mean, I can't imagine doing that. And so it would be like, well, what's the in? What's yeah. the, you know, finding a way into that? Who are you, maybe sort of final, who, who are you into reading right now? What am I reading? I'm reading a Paul Oster book. I've never mm. read Paul Oster and liking this book very much and wondering why I always had a bad opinion of, of Paul Oster. What else? It was I just, I'm trying to think if it was on my podcast. I was just talking to somebody about Paul Oster, who, who, who I think of as, who at one point felt like this very hip sort of novelist you needed to follow, and then just, it didn't disappear, kind of kept writing, but wasn't, was almost, almost became a little uncool or something. Like, I don't know, like just what his, what his reputation is, which may be totally divorced from who Paul Oster actually is. And also, he may have been writing at the same quality, has been writing at all, the same quality all the way through, but just it's like the vicissitudes of literary reputation or something like that. Yeah. I'm also reading Adam Schatz has got a, a biography of Fanon coming out. Oh. He's really masterful. I know Adam. So he gave me an advanced He's good. I mean, I haven't... Has he written other books? I mean, I've read his stuff like in the London... A bunch of essays. Okay. I can't remember the title of it, but, but also about figure. You know, I think yeah. it's kind of personality-based because he's done a lot of journalism. So I am, I think, in that kind of scavenger phase of trying to figure out what to, you know, think about, work on. So I find, yeah, a bit a lot. Do you, do, you, do you worry about it at all, or do you just kind of trust your antenna, your receptivity to the universe? Yeah, I, I do worry about that because I'm somebody that gets kind of depressed and self-loathing when I'm not working on something. I mean, what, 
it is one of the reasons that I kind of do like writing journalism to the extent that I do is people will just all of a sudden write you and say you this or write about that. So I'm kind of at the mercy of editors for that. Those little jolts of, you know, here's a project for you. Do you have anything coming out? Anything that's just like is mostly written or written that that I should be on the lookout for? Um, no, I've got some things in the works. I, as I said, I just wrote this piece for Wired, and there's a great editor there who wants me to write more, which is fun. You know, it's I don't know if it's earth-shaking stuff, but it's fun to write. Yeah. Cool. All right. Well, any any questions for me? <laughs> I was hoping, as I say, I was hoping that I would get energized and figure out what my you know next project should be. Yeah, that's my question for you. What should I do? What should your next project be? I think you should write a short, just set yourself the, the task of writing a shortish piece on Malcolm rather than trying to figure out whether there's a whole book there. Find some, some one piece of it and, and, and write that. Yeah. And what would my way in be? Like, what, what is it that I would be wanting to explore? I mean, I'm sort of tempted to say, you know, you should go into the archives and see if there's more on this sort of affair she had. Whether it's the affair with Gardner or the end of her marriage to, uh, what's his name, Donald. One would find it hard to believe that Jen and Malcolm would leave really useful traces of that in her papers. You can imagine her pruning all of that stuff or putting it behind a, to be opened only 50 years from now, but. There's one box that has that, like a 70 year from now date or 50 year from now date on it. I'm trying to remember. I always have a few stories in my head that I that I don't personally want to write, but I think other people should write, but the only one that's coming to mind is about Vietnamese shrimp fishermen in the Gulf of Mexico. That's probably not up your alley. Um, I hope it's up yours. I, like I just it's... don't have, I don't think it's like one of those things where you'd have to, it's, it's one of those things you'd have to go out on the boat with them for like a week or something and just like drink bad Vietnamese beer with them on the boat. But uh-huh. this was good. Okay. Um, okay. It was fun to talk to you. Yeah. I, I love the, I love the sub stuff. All right, and if ever you're in Austin or next time I'm in New York, I'll, I'll drop you a line. Okay, cool. Good. Okay. All right. Okay. See ya. This was an episode of Eminent Americans, the podcast. If you liked the podcast, subscribe to it uh, and subscribe to the newsletter of the same name, Eminent Americans, the newsletter. Recommend it to your friends. Rate it on the platform on which you listen to it. Beam good vibes about it out into the universe. Thank you to my producer, Nick Worthen, and thank you to you, my listeners. This is a labor of love for me, and I do genuinely appreciate your attention, particularly if you've gotten all the way here to the end of all things. Feel free to email me with questions, thoughts, observations, even diatribes at djops at gmail.com. That's D as in Daniel, J as in James, ops as in ops or Oppenheimer at gmail.com. Have a great day.